All right. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into the Word of God and to go through our curriculum today. Father, bless those that have come out here. Bless those that have come hungry for the Word of God as we do this pre-teach. Father, help me as the pastor and teacher to work out this curriculum and to teach the Word of God to a generation that is very hungry for you. Father, we thank you for helping us. We thank you that your Word challenges us and brings change into our life. In Jesus' name, amen. This is our fifth and final lesson on the four stages of Christian growth. We are calling this the father-slash-mother stage. The Bible honestly speaks mostly of fathers in the faith, but we do know that there are mothers in the faith. Deborah was called a mother over Israel. Uh, she's the only executive leader Israel ever had, but she was called a mother. And uh, certainly we have others in the New Testament that are referred to or mentioned. Titus 2 is one of them. But we're going to probably just for simplicity, we're just going to call them fathers. But we understand women can aspire to this as well. There's been great, many great uh, mother in the faith. And honestly, in America in the last 60 years, if it wasn't for the women of faith and the praying mamas, most of the men wouldn't be born again because it was the, the heartfelt cry of a mama and a mother and a woman of God that prayed many of us through to salvation. So we don't want to belittle the women of faith, but just to use the biblical term and just to kind of keep it simplistic, we're going to use the term father in faith over and over again. Uh, this is our final stage of Christian growth. There's four of them as we have uncovered in the Word of God. You have baby stage, you have little child stage, you have young man stage or young woman stage, and then you have father and mother in the faith. That's our last stage. I don't think anybody in this church, including myself, is a father in the faith yet. Just so we can kind of get everybody back to reality. Some folks, because they've been spirit-filled 20 years, think they're the next Billy Graham or Brother Hagen or whatever, and I just think, no, no, no. So these lessons have also been our most sober because I think they show us how perhaps not spiritual we fancied ourselves and so it causes our hearts to go, oh goodness. But let's look at this. The final stage of Christian development is father or mother stage. This final stage should be an aspiration for every believer. This is not just for the apostles. This is not just for prophets. This is not for Old Testament judges or kings. This is for every Christian to aspire to. Sadly, very, uh, very few Christians will ever reach this stage due to laziness, selfishness, and burnout. Uh, it is my firm conviction, I believe with all my heart, God Almighty would have every Christian to grow and advance to one day they would become a father or a mother in the faith. That is my firm conviction. I believe the Bible teaches that. I, I have noticed, though, that there are very few. In my own personal life, I can only say I have three fathers. I have had two pastors and three fathers. Pastor Vaughn was my first pastor and my first father in the faith. I served other pastors, Pastor Darren, Pastor Trey, Pastor McCamey, Pastor Tim, then I came back to Pastor Vaughn. Uh, none of those other men were fathers to me. I came back, Pastor Vaughn died, and the Lord gave me Dr. Barclay as a pastor and a father. I count him as a father in the faith, and I also count Pastor Kwoko as a father in the faith. Though he's not my pastor, he is certainly a father to me. And Dr. Barclay has even used that terminology. He said, I've had five daddies in the faith. And his fathers in the faith were Dr. George Evans, Dr. Lester Sumrall, Pastor John Osteen, Dr. Roy Hicks, and Dr. Hilton Sutton. He said, I had five fathers in the faith, but only one pastor. And so not many Christians become fathers, and it's unfortunate. I do not believe you have to be a minister to be a father in the faith. I don't see that biblically. But let's keep reading here. 
This stage can only be obtained if you hold fast your faith steadfast until the end. However, many Christians cool off and become less active in the kingdom the older they become. That's a sad statement of truth, mostly here in America, because most Americans or most Christians in America are affected by the American culture, and the American culture tells us once we hit 65 or 70, that's when you throw it in a neutral and you just coast off into eternity. That's not biblical. That is American, but it's unbiblical. The biblical precedent is you do more in your last days than you ever did. The biblical precedent is you have more faith on your deathbed than you had when you got born again. The biblical precedent is on your last, your last great act as a Christian as you gather your family, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren around you, you lay hands on them and you pronounce blessings by the gift of special faith. That's biblical and you declare the blessings of God over your children and grandchildren and you give them that inheritance that you've laid up for them both spiritually and financially. What we see in America though is most Christians about the time their kids get into college and they become grandparents they kind of kick their Christian walk out of gear and they just coast and they say in their heart let the next generation do it. And I say fooey on that. I need folks that have been around longer than me as a young preacher that can give me wisdom that are still pioneering the thing. Should the Lord Jesus Christ tarry, I know I will live to be an old man. The Lord has promised me a ripe old age, and I plan to be blown and going as harder than anybody into my 80s. I don't want to live them to be in my 90s. I think late 80s would be good enough. Everybody else seems to go in the 80s. i will be good enough for me. Dr. Sumrall, before he died, was back on muleback in Tibet in his 80s and got an infected tooth, got some pneumonia, went to the hospital and said, you know what, I think I'm done. Yeah, I've had enough. I'm going home. And he just went home, but he was riding mules like he did 50 years earlier, back in the 30s, actually 60 years earlier. That's how it ought to be. This is one of the reasons we don't see many Christians hitting that father or motherhood stage in Christ, whether they become a spiritual mother, not just to their own children, but to kids that are young enough to be their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. The Bible speaks of both fathers and mothers. We should strive to fulfill the tremendously needful role of spiritual fathers and mothers. For simplicity's sake, we will only use the term father. Now, that's not a sexist thing. That's just that way I don't have to type father slash mother. Or as I'm preaching, say father slash mother. We can just say fathers and you understand this is for both men and women. So I have developed, as I studied this, 18 characteristics of fathers. Now we didn't have nearly this many for young men or young women. But one of the reasons we have so many is because we see from the writings of the Apostle Paul, who was a true father, we get to see an awesome example of a father in the faith lived out before us in his writings. So that's where we get a lot of these. So 1 John 2, 13a and 14a, let's just look at our first thing. Our first verse says, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. Now 13a and 14a say the exact same thing. The two verses back to back start off by saying, John the Apostle, John the Age, John the Beloved, John the Revelator says, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. He's not talking about dads. He's talking about spiritual fathers. So our first characteristic is fathers have walked with God a long time. I don't believe I could be a father yet. I just, I've been born again since I was seven. I'm 36 today. That's 29 years. But I've really only walked with Jesus Christ for 18 years. And I just don't have, I don't believe I have the depth of it. I don't believe I know him well enough 
to be a full-fledged father. I might have parts of my life as a pastor and minister that stretch into that, but that's not where a bulk of my life is yet. And I'm okay with that. I don't, I don't want to be anywhere I don't need to be before I should be there. I'm content. I'm still mastering young man stage. It is possible in this verse, just to give you the proper place interpretation of it, it is possible in this verse that John is speaking to believers in his day that had walked with Jesus Christ while he was on the earth and therefore had known Jesus much longer than the other two groups he writes to, which is the young men and the little children. First John 1 starts off, says that we have known him which is from the beginning. And so John was one of those writing who had actually known Jesus Christ from the beginning. And so part of the textual interpretation of this verse is the fathers he could be writing to at that moment were possibly those who had actually been disciples of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. But again, they would have known him the longest. Whereas the others he's writing to were just new converts or kind of moderate converts in their age. So part of it could be the fathers are, he's writing to some believers who were actually alive when Jesus Christ was on the earth and they had known him from the beginning, just like John had. But that just helps us to feed the characteristic that fathers have walked with God a long time. Regardless, he addresses the fathers twice in two verses and mentions that they have known him that is from the beginning. Fathers get to be fathers by walking with Jesus Christ and never looking back. Too many Christians start off on fire and then dry up. Too many Christians start off and they have a, a season where they're glowing for Jesus and then you look at them five years later and they're nowhere on the radar. The key to Christian success is you just don't quit. Through hell, high water, good times, bad times, whether you're going 60 miles an hour or six centimeters an hour, you don't quit. Not every day is a rocket ship kind of day. Some days are just down in the dumps kind of days, but you don't quit. Even Paul spent two years in prison out of the will of God and was shut up and silent, was not able to write. That was a bad two-year period, but he got out and just did not quit. He got back after it. Look at our next verse, Hebrews 5.14. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use, habit, and custom have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So here we have three more characteristics of fathers. I want you to notice the term there, full age. That means mature. And that means spiritually mature. So that can only be talking about a father or a mother. So number two is fathers, they have their diet, or their, they diet on strong meat. Fathers do strong meat. Now in our previous lesson, we talked about in the New Testament, there is meat and there is strong meat. Meat is the doing of the Word. Jesus Christ taught us that in John chapter 4. The woman with the well. He told them, he said, my meat, he, they came, they said, are you hungry? He says, I have meat that you know not of. And the disciples said, who brought him meat? Who snuck him some food? And he said, my meat is to do the will of my Father. That's the meat. We feed baby Christians milk because babies just learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. But the second a baby starts doing what they've learned, that becomes meat. Because evangelism is evangelism is evangelism, whether you got born again today or you've been evangelizing for 25 years. To do the work of an evangelist, that is meat. So when you take milk and you do it, the will of the Father, that makes it meat. But here in Hebrews, it talks about strong meat. So there's two classifications of meat based on the scriptures. Strong meat, 
we might could say, are more difficult things in the Word, more, greater responsibilities. Just in the natural, as you grow up, your responsibilities become more and more complicated. You get set over more and more people. You're not just doing two plus two, you're doing two million plus two million. You're not just doing balancing your checkbook, you're ba balancing a business checkbook. You're not just over yourself and you, you're over yourself and a wife and three kids and a business and five families in your business and their kids and their 401ks. Just as you mature in the natural, you go from doing to doing a whole lot more complicated. And that's a father in the faith. You look at someone like Dr. Barclay or the late Dr. Sumrall, they weren't just little ministers. Dr. Barclay is now pastoring hundreds of ministers. That's strong meat. That's not me pastoring 200 sheep. That's him pastoring 600 plus ministers. And those he doesn't pastor, everybody you watch on TBN, they call him for help when all their stuff falls apart. <laughs> That's strong meat. We're not there. Ain't nobody here, and even in this town there. So it's, it, strong meat refers to an increase of responsibility and an increase of the will of God in their lives. Right now, the will of God for my life is to pastor this church we do evangelism, we're training up disciples, we're making ministers, we're supporting missionaries, we're on two small television stations. But as I grow in Christ, the meat will become stronger, the will will become bigger, it will encompass more. And that, if I walk with God, will never stop. The table of meat will be getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There'll be more to do. Just like Brother Sumrall, he was in his 70s when he was in Israel, and the Lord said, I want you to feed the hungry children of the world. And he said, why? And he said, because that's what I want you to do. Because, and the Lord spoke to him. He said, because all over the world, I have children that pray every night, uh, give us this day our daily bread, and they go hungry. The Lord told him that. He said, and I will not stand for that. And he said, why are you giving this to me, me to do? And he said, and the Lord told Dr. Summerall, he said, because I just now trust you enough to give it to you. In his 70s. But with that came that Hercules C-130 Army aircraft that the Ronald Reagan had to approve Lester Sumrall to have because it was it's an act, still an active military airship but the Lord told him I will give you a Hercules and he got it and even Dr. Ingolf Schmidt he said I've been in it I've seen it and most of the folks I know who knew Brother Sumrall they've been in it they've seen it and the Lord supernaturally gave him a Hercules C-130 airship because only it can take off and land on very short runways in fact with one of the hostage crisis rescue missions in the 80s. I think it was the Iran-Contras or one of the ones. The, they had actually rigged a Hercules C-130 with, uh, with forward and reverse jets so that it could literally land and take off in a football stadium. That's how crazy this airplane is. It would come in and the reverse thrusters would slow it down. They could rescue the hostages, put them on there, turn the thing around and with jets take it up out of a football stadium. That's crazy. That's 150 yards at most. And that's a big ship. Those are the air refuelers that they circle out in the ocean to refuel our jets. Those are Hercules. It's a cool airplane. It's one of my favorites. That's strong meat. <laughs> Us just coming to church, that's little baby bites. <laughs> that's like potted ham or something. <laughs> this is not only the doing of the Word, but the skilled and difficult doing of the Word. It is the doing of the Word for both good situations and bad situations. Point number three, fathers have a habit and custom of using the word to try and test situations and thereby they know good and evil. 
You'll see with the father and a mother, they're much more advanced. They can walk in, they can see the good and the evil. They can see the good facade someone's putting on, and they can see the evil behind it. They can see the evil somebody has on the outside, but they can also see the good heart behind it. Whereas someone who's inexperienced, they look at the good and they fall for it. Or other people, they totally cast out that which is sufficiently evil. But a father or mother, they've got just through use and custom of training their, ex, their senses with the Word of God, they, they got this real strong sense of right from wrong. And it's not necessarily even a spiritual thing. It's just a doing of the Word. They just know it. They, they can pick up on it. Point four, fathers can discern good and evil. We pointed this out with the last lesson. Immature believers often proclaim only their good and everyone else's evil. I want you to see that it says that they can discern both good and evil. Baby Christians and immature Christians, all they discern is evil. There's a devil over there. That's not right. They did me wrong. Uh, pastor, when are you going to do something about this? They're just always this way. Well, hopefully a pastor, hopefully I have enough of a discerning spirit about me that I can see, yeah, that's wrong, but look at all the other good they did. And what about you? You're the one coming to me, running, throwing them under the bus. So once you start discerning good and evil and not just evil, now you're starting to get some maturity about you. Look at our next verse, Titus 2, 3, 4a. The aged women, this is one of our ones for mothers of the faith, the aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. And that's the critical thing with mothers. Teachers of good things that they may teach the young women. What you see a lot of times, old women in the church, especially American women, American Christians, women, they get in the church and the older they get, they just dry up and do nothing. And, and within the last year around here, we've really pushed to make elder women more of disciples to the younger women. I've encouraged a lot of our older mamas who have uh, college-age girls, get around our young women, love on them, teach them how to cook, teach them how to love their husbands, teach them how to love their kids, be a godly woman to them. I don't know where along the lines the church, the church decided to stop using women to disciple women. As we've taught, I can't disciple the college kids. That's weird. I'm not going to be alone with a college girl. I'm not going to be alone with any woman but my wife. So I can't do it. I can't expect one of my elders to be alone with women. That's not proper either. Well, the Lord set the thing up. Here we have a verse in an epistle by an apostle that says, Elder women, teach the younger women. And so one of the things we see with mothers is that they're very eager to get around the young ladies in Christ and teach them. And they get permission from the pastor, sure. They say, Pastor, I see this young, son, young mom over here. She's really botched it. Can I do something? Yeah. Yeah, it seems good. Sick them. And so she just pulls her little tugboat alongside and says, Hey there, little mama, let me help you. You're really, let me, just, let me take you out to lunch and tell you how to do things better. And adopt them. That, that's becoming a mother in the faith. What we've seen, and I don't understand it, it's almost an oxymoron or hypocrisy. Some women in the church want to be Jezebels and boss men around and steer the church, but they don't want to take some young woman in Christ under their wing and disciple them and mother them and encourage them and adopt them as a spiritual daughter. That's an awesome thing because uh, it, it'll mature the ladies faster. I don't have to do all the work. It doesn't put me in compromising positions. It keeps women out of my office, which is a good thing, but also it allows that woman in Christ, that mother, to grow and develop and be used of God as she trains a young sister in Christ. We don't see this much in American churches. We are working to get it here in this church better. Point five, mothers are always looking to impart into younger daughters. 
just like a natural mom. Like I watch it with my wife. She's so excited to have a little girl and she wants to put everything into her little girl and she wants to love her and bows. And we just went for a hike this morning and we're getting putting Liddy in the backpack and Amanda's, where's your bow, honey? Where's your bow? I said, woman, we're going hiking. She doesn't need a bow. No, she needs a bow. If we're going to take pictures, she needs a bow. I don't have the bow. I don't know where the bow is. Get in the backpack. Come on, let's go. And so we load her up and then mom, here comes mama with the bow. She just wants to put everything she can in her little girl because that's what mamas do. I think some American women, they think, well, I've raised my kids, I'm done. That comes back to stick a fork in me, I'm done. I'm just going to coast the rest of my useless life out and do nothing. Except want the pastor to fix everything that's broken. Well, how about you sow and you can reap? How about you help somebody else and we'll be happy to help you? I think it's a pretty simple process. They have an eagerness to help and teach. A true mother is not selfish or competitive. She isn't worried about herself or her problems. A spiritual mama will lay awake at night and wonder how the college girls are doing. A spiritual mama will lay awake and say, Honey, how's that? let's have that new girl that's been coming over to the house. She doesn't seem to have any friends and I just have a heart for her. I have a burden for her. And that's man, typical man, say, all right, yeah, okay, whatever, you tell me. Well, yeah, fine. And that's how the man does it. But see, the woman has the burden for her. She's always thinking about how she can help other people. That's a true woman of God. That's a true Proverbs 31 woman. She has this heart that's always wanting to help other women. It's weird when women want to help little boys. That gets kind of weird sometimes, especially in our culture nowadays. And it's weird, it's very weird when grown men want to help young women. That's perverse. It's not proper. It's sick. You know, even in our church, we don't let men change diapers ever because there's something weird about it. She isn't worried about herself or her problems. She is looking to invest in the younger woman or the younger generation of women because she has something to invest. And maybe that's why more older Christian women don't invest. They have nothing. You don't see poor people investing in the stock market. They have nothing to invest. And perhaps that's why we don't see more elder mothers in the faith actively participating in the church. They're just wanting to boss people around. They don't want to actually invest. It's easier to come to church and boss the preacher around. It's a lot more work and effort to adopt a young woman in Christ and begin to invest in another woman, begin to invest in another person. Now that your kids are raised, your grandkids are in high school or college, you have nothing else to do, get a hold of a young woman and adopt her. Open your home to hers, to her. And buy, buy her clothes, take her out to dinner. Make a, make a daughter out of her and invest something in her. Maybe that's why folks don't do it, is because they have nothing to invest. She, what does she have to invest? She has mastered what it means to be a godly woman. And she looks at that young woman in Christ and says, Lord, don't let it take her 50 years to get there like it's taken me. Let me invest my 50 years of experience in this young woman in three years. Let, help me, Lord, to bring her along the way so much quicker. All right, 1 Corinthians 4, 15 and 16. We get three more characteristics out of this. Paul said, For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore I beseech you, be you followers of me. So point six, uh, you will not have many fathers in your Christian walk, nor should you. Like I said, I've only had three. One's dead, two of them are alive, Pastor Okwokwo and Dr. Barclay. A father in the faith should be much greater and knowledgeable than you in the things of God. They should be someone you can trust more than yourself. Thank God for that. 
Point seven, fathers produce converts to Jesus Christ, but they don't stop there. We have to make that point. They don't stop there. You and I, we win folks to Jesus all the time, but we may never do anything with them after that. And in a local church, you're not designed to. You're designed to win them to Jesus, bring them here. We disciple them, and the church does its thing. A father in the faith will win a convert, bring them alongside them, and train and invest in them, and train and invest in them, and train and invest in them. Fathers adopt converts to be disciples, and in doing so become spiritual mentors to them, training them, training them up in the things of God. So that's another characteristic of a father. They produce mentor, uh, produce converts, and then they adopt them. Like Paul did Timothy, like Paul did Titus, like Paul did Epaphroditus, he was adopting these. Point eight, fathers live a life worthy of emulation. That just means to copy. It is safe to follow a father in the faith as they follow the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11 one says the same thing. Sadly enough, Paul had to tell the Corinthians twice, it's okay to follow me. Twice in that epistle, he said, follow me, follow me. Philippians 3, he also says, follow me, follow me. Their life has become a living epistle worth reading and ordering your life by. So that's a father of the faith. I, for years, once I moved away from here after 99, I would make a lot of decisions by asking, what would Pastor Vaughn do? Pastor Vaughn wouldn't do that, so I'm not going to do that. They had become an epistle to me. Now, whether I was accurately judging things or not, my heart was still trying to hook up and say, you know what, Pastor Vaughn wouldn't do that, so I'm not going to do that. Dr. Barclay wouldn't do that, so I'm not going to do that. How would Pastor Okwoko handle that? I still think, I said, man, Pastor Okwoko prays a lot more than I do, and I want to be like my mentor. I need to pray more. And so a father is someone, they have a lifestyle that really you could put anybody in front of them and they, that person who's placed in front of them would benefit by watching their life. And that's where we want to get to be as fathers and mothers. We want to have a life that every aspect of it is worth copying. Now, not every aspect of it is, is right or wrong. Uh, you know, maybe I organize my shoe closet a certain way, then maybe that's worth copying, maybe not. Maybe I stain my deck one color, you'd prefer it another. Not everything, but you understand the spiritual things. That's, that's part of it. Fathers live a life worthy of emulation. Next verse, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Paul wrote that, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, after that list of a night and a day I was in a deep, twice I was beaten with rods, uh, 40 lashes saved, all that stuff. He said, and on top of all this hard stuff, the care of all the churches. So point number nine, fathers feel the burden of the church. Just as a natural dad feels and carries the burden of a natural household with all of its bills, maintenance, structure, protection, and management, a spiritual father knows the burden of the body of believers. While the children haven't a clue, the father works hard to keep it that way. Perhaps one of the areas I am stretching into fatherhood is that I know what goes on in this church and what it takes to run it, whereas 98% of the people here I don't have a clue and neither should they. Every, it's just like, and I guess that's how it's set up to be. Everybody thinks that their problem is the only problem that's being dealt with at that day. And that, and, and I, I understand it too, and I'm, I'm mindful of it with my pastor, but everybody thinks all day long I've got an appointment with Pastor Chris, 
and I'm going to go in there and, and they think about that problem and that appointment all day long and they don't realize what we did, what I did in the morning, what I dealt with in the meetings we had and who I talked on the phone with and then I did a pre-teaching, then we led prayer, then I met with somebody else and their problem that was dire, then I met with you and then I had another meeting and then I took my wife out to dinner and then I went home and wrote curriculum. And so, but all you can focus on is that one little problem, but everything else, we were doing something all day long to maintain the burden of the household or the finances or prayed, prayed this or prayed about this person who was trying to come in and we prayed them out to keep your kids safe. That's how it should be. So fathers feel the burdens. Just like as kids, you don't know what your parents are doing growing up and that's how it should be. The kids should never know the burden of the household. The, otherwise, it, it, it kind of perverts or stunts their growth because they're, they're not strong enough to bear that burden. And when a household knows the burden of everything, then the father's doing a horrible job. And so the, to, that, to that end, there is somewhat a degree of secrecy that is not a malicious secrecy. It's just you, you, don't, know about the, you don't even know about the homosexual that tried to come in here and take over the church. You don't need to know about the Jezebel that was slandering me behind my back. You don't need to know that we're, uh, having str we're struggling with this area over here, or that I've got to sit and deal with this issue over here. You don't need to know about that. You just need to know, hey, if I can just get to church, the word will be preached, worship will be awesome, and I will be fixed. <laughs> yes, and just make sure you give in the offering, and then you can go home. <laughs> That's how it should be. So fathers feel the burden of the church. Little children don't have a clue. Little children don't understand 401ks. They don't understand taxes. Little children don't understand property assessments. Little children don't understand rezoning laws. Little children don't understand all of that. They just know daddy brings home the paycheck. I'm having sweet rolls for breakfast. And then he's going to buy me a GI Joe or a Barbie. <laughs> and they're happy. And that's a good childhood. Galatians 4, 19 and 20. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. This is written to the Galatian church because they had left the gospel of Jesus Christ and been suckered back into Judaism. And he says, he calls them my little children because they were his. He had birthed that church, but they had begun to lose the image of Jesus Christ and conform back to Mosaic law. So he said, I'm travailing, which is a form of prayer. I'm travailing in birth again until Christ be formed in you. And then he goes on to say, I desire to be present with you. Boy, he wanted to be with them. When you love something very dearly and you hear about it being bad or broken or going wrong, you want to be there to try to fix it. That's why when your baby gets hurt, you pick them up and hold them. Or your child gets damaged, you want to hold them. There's, there's not much you can do, but you just want to be there. That's what Paul said. And he said to change my voice. That means the whole epistle up until this point is pretty brutal. And he's saying, I want to get to you so I can fix you, so I can stop being so mean to you. I want to be able to change my tone of voice. When you read Galatians, it's pretty brutal. One translation translates Galatians 3.1, Oh, you stupid Galatians. That's pretty brutal language. That's why he says in the next chapter over, I, I want to come be with you so I can change my voice. <laughs> so I don't have to be this mean jerk. He says, For I stand in doubt of you. Uh, one translation says, Basically, what are you thinking? So fathers, point number 10, fathers work hard to keep their converts looking like Jesus Christ, both through prayer and discipleship. It's not good enough for a true father just to birth a convert. A true, a true father is going to stick with you as long as you're submitted, will stick with you until you're truly looking like a Christian. 
to until you're truly acting like a Christian. Many pastors in our nation now are not fathers. All they are are just propagandists because they grow a big church, but they don't really care if you look like Jesus or not. They, the fact they're wanting you to not look like Jesus, they're promoting the non-Jesus image so you'll come to their church. Because it's not about helping you, it's about helping their ego, and they want the biggest church in town. I'm not interested in the biggest church in town. I'm not impressed with the biggest churches in our town. Because to get that big in this day and age, you've compromised something. What goes on in our biggest churches in this state is not the move of the Holy Ghost. Because there are just not that many people hungry for the move of the Holy Ghost. Because all you have to do is have one good Holy Ghost barn burning service and you'll clear the church out. Only those that truly want God will come back. And it's not going to be 3,000 people. Not in the town of Cookville. What a true father is, no matter the price, he's going to make sure Christ is formed in you if you'll submit to it. If you won't submit to it, he can't force it on you. He just, and he won't. If Aquila does not want to look like Jesus, I cannot chase her down. I cannot force Christ in her. I cannot force her to be discipled. If she wants it, though, I can do it. But if she doesn't, I just have to let her go. So fathers work hard to keep their converts looking like Jesus Christ, both through prayer and discipleship. A father can tell when one of their sons or daughters is changing back into the world's image. We can see it. As a pastor, I can see it. I can see it when Kiki starts getting carnal. I can see it when Shayla starts kind of kind of losing that glory and that joy. We see it all the time. You just, it's easy to do as a pastor. You can tell when your child's happy. You can tell when your child's down. It's just part of being a parent. Point 11, fathers want to be with their children when things aren't going well to check on them, encourage them, or even rebuke them. However, not all children want this kind of attention. Some children resist this and must be left to their own devices. We do a lot of work around here and it, it takes a careful balance that we don't come across as cultish or stalking, but we have our care deacon program. We want to know if you missed two or three services, where you've been. So we check on you because that's part of the fatherhood that's in me that I'm trying to grow into that we're, I want to make sure you're okay. I love you. Where are you at? Any good pastor will do that. In mega churches, you can't have that because you don't know who's there and who's not there unless you have a good program set up to track things. The balance we have to strike is, if you don't come to three or four services, we'll either hear, well, how come nobody's checked on me? Or we're going to hear, I don't like them being so nosy. So which is it? Why doesn't anybody check on me or why are they so nosy? We're, we're not trying to control your life. We're just trying to check up on you. And so we have to, we don't always succeed at that because you never know when the fickle heart's going to want attention or be left alone. Typically those that are in sin want to be left alone. And those that are baby and immature, they want to be checked on. <laughs> and so we just rain upon the just and the unjust alike, give them all the same treatment. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not only the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. Paul writing to the Thessalonians. We get a few things from that. Point 12 says, Fathers possess a tenderness and gentleness lacked by developing believers. I've been in lots of meetings where the preachers were just total jerks. Not talking about a good rebuke. I'm talking about just rude and bossy. This disqualifies a lot of your TBN preachers. They're just rude. 
they're arrogant. But Paul said here, we were gentle among you like a wet nurse taking care of an infant. That's how you have to treat children. Very gentle. I don't wrestle with my little girl like I might a 15-year-old boy when we have a 15-year-old boy. So you're, you're different with them. You're gentle with them. And a father knows how to, how to be what with who. You handle girls one way, you handle boys another way. You handle infants one way, like Brother Chad. He, I guarantee you, he plays with his son Cade one way. He plays with his son Carter Jackson another way because they're about 12 years apart in age. But a father knows when to be gentle and when to pour on the pressure. He told the Thessalonians we were gentle. We just saw with the Galatians, I want to change my voice because I'm a little too rough for you right now. So he knows how to turn it off. Some folks are just like a one-trick pony. Some preachers, they're just blah, 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 blah. Or like the seeker friendlies, they're just donut soft, donut soft, donut soft. There's a nice balance to be struck. Fathers possess a tenderness and gentleness lacked by developing believers. They have a true father's love for children. They are not rude or bossy or arrogant. They truly see their converts as children they are responsible for. That's a true father when he sees every member of his church or his fellowship or whatever he's doing. He sees them as members of his own family that he dearly loves. Point 13, fathers imprint and impart their own soul and personality on the believers they are around. Just like you're, you look and act just like your parents because they've imparted their soul into you. If you have a father in the faith, you'll start to look and act a little bit like them. You'll take on their vernacular. Vernacular, you'll take on their traits. Sometimes when I preach, I feel like Pastor Vaughn. Sometimes when I preach, I feel just like Dr. Barclay and how I say things and how I stand. I remember a, uh, a year ago, Shayla posted that comment on that website, on that blog up in Tri-Cities about that pastor that had all those tattoos. And I read her blog and I said, those are my terms. This has got to be one of my sheep. And it just said Shayla. I said, that's got to be my Shayla because those are my terms. She's preaching to that dirty preacher the way I would. And it made me so proud. Said, that's one of my sheep. You go, girl. Wear it out. And they subsequently shut down the blog and the pastor moved to Texas or something. You probably ran him out of town. <laughs> so it's a perfectly okay if you start to take on the soul or personality of your spiritual mentor or father. That's... A lot of folks say, well, they're just trying to make little mini, mini them over there. It's a, it's a mini Barclay. It's a mini Hagen. It's a mini Copeland. That's biblical. I guarantee you, Titus would have sounded just like Paul. Timothy would have looked and talked just like Paul. You'd have seen Timothy, but you'd have said, there's some strong flavors of Paul there. Because it's, it's just how it works. These were Paul's churches. He said, we imparted our own soul into you. In that regard, it's a very intimate thing. That's how you know they have a heart for you. It's not just some kind of blow in, blow up, and blow out. It's, it's a committing of the soul. Fathers imprint and impart their own soul and personality on the believers they are around. Just as a natural child takes on the personality of their parents, a spiritual child will begin to look and act like their father or mother in the faith. This indicates a deep level of commitment. Fly-by-night preachers will not be able to impart their souls into the saints. Nobody here talks like Dr. Ingolf Schmidt. Nobody here talks like Reverend Jean Paul. Nobody here talks like Pastor Aquokel because they're just guest ministers to us. And we don't mean just, but they come and do their thing, but they, they're not imparting their souls because they're not here long enough to. A father's committed. He's, he's stuck with you. And even if you grow up and leave and go off someplace, the father will still be, your spiritual father will still be over you and, and be praying for you in that regard. 
Next to the last verse, 2 Corinthians 12, 14 and 15. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. For I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Some hurtful words for Paul to say. The more I love you, the less you love me. The Corinthian church was his worst church. <laughs> and not only were they goofy and carnal, but false apostles had crept in and were trying to hijack them. And I can only imagine the pain Paul felt being in Rome in prison or wherever he was and not being able to get to that church to get his family back. But he had these ding-dong hypocrites were sneaking in there just massacring his flock. And I, I, we don't know from the Bible who the pastor was, but apparently he wasn't doing his job because Paul was having to send letters. We know that Paul sent three epistles to them. We only have record of two. The first epistle is actually the second one, and the second one is actually the third one. We don't have a record. We don't have the first one he sent. But Paul was really concerned for this church. He said a lot of things there. Point 14, fathers are not spiritual or natural burdens. That's what he said, I will not be burdensome to you. They don't make messes. They clean them up. That's how you know you've become a father. You're no longer a burden. You're a burden remover. You're a mess cleaner upper. They are not a burden. They relieve burdens. With Dr. Barclay, I'll, I'll tell off on him. He wouldn't mind. When he comes here, he asks for certain things, but he does not demand them. He asks for fuel for his jet, but if we can't pay for it, it doesn't stop him from coming. This last time, we were able to send him off with about $4,000, which is a great offering for two nights. And he said, um, he, he said oh, he asked me before we, before we preached, he said, uh, are you going to take up two offerings tonight, son? I said, no, sir, I just plan to take up one for you, unless you want me to take up two offerings. He said, well, what are you going to do about your butt to the budget? Don't you need to take up an offering to meet the budget of the meeting? Because see, he's trying to relieve a burden. And I said, no, sir, we budget for this all year round. We already have the money. And he said, he, he thought me, he said, as a wise son, he said, uh, I wish more folks would budget for stuff like this. And so then after we gave him his offering, I said, and he looked at it, he said, he said, now, he said, now, is the, did you put the fuel money in this? I said, no, sir, no, sir. We already paid that to you. And he said, whoa. And so you could see just with the act of money, he was not here to be a burden. He was not here to milk us. He was not here to squeeze money out of us. He, he was here to relieve a burden. He was here to refresh us. He was here to help us. And the only connection he has to this church is me because the Lord said, that's my pastor. So we have him come here and preach. He's my father, but he was not coming here to be a burden. In fact, he often fights to pay for dinners because he says, you've already paid for so much. And I said, so let me pay for this. We only get to take you out to eat a few times a year. Just let me get the tip. Let me get the check. And so we have to fight with him over that. And so that, that's, that's a true father right there. A lot of other folks, a lot of your big name folks on TV, and they come in, they demand a $10,000 upfront payment. They want the nicest hotel. They want to be picked up in a limousine. They want a car with leather seats. They want blue M&Ms. They don't want to be touched by anybody. They want to be whisked away. They'll, this is shocking, but it's the truth in our nation and among folks whose names you know. They only want Pellegrino water. They only want this kind of water. They only want this. They won't eat there. It's just a bunch of diva Hollywood stuff. And it's, it's, they're just little kids in Christ that have an anointing. Bless their hearts. So fathers are not burdens. They remove them. Point 15, fathers gladly spend for their disciples. 
They spend their time, resources, energies, and life. In that regard, everything they do is focused around the believers. If I could not afford to bring Dr. Barclay in, he would come anyway. If we could not save the money up to pay for his airplane and hotels, he would come anyway. Because that's, that's just how it is. Brother Hagen taught them that. Brother Hagen taught, and he was a true father in the faith, he taught everybody at Ramah. He said, there's nothing wrong with letting a church know what it'll cost to get you there. But if they can't pay for it and God says go, then you pay for it yourself and you go. And that's what Brother Hagen taught. He taught, don't be a burden. Fathers gladly spend. Point 16, fathers are not interested in money. When my dad turned 60-something here in a few months, he's not interested in money. He's got all that he wants. In fact, the older my dad gets, the harder it is to shop for him. That's how dads are. It's the immature kids that have the long list of needs. <laughs> and probably as you get older, you realize there's less and less that you want. It's just, I just want my kids blessed. Uh, I want to take my kids somewhere fun. Or, or I want to take my wife somewhere. I want to take my husband somewhere. It's no, the more mature you get, the less it's about you. That's how you can see so many Christian, the preachers on Christian television, they are so immature. And they have no right being in any kind of ministry at all because it's all about them. And they look to the church as a cash cow. True fathers are not interested in money. They are interested in furthering the believer. That's what Paul said. I will not seek yours, but I seek you. They are interested in furthering the believer. They, are not made, they have not made the gospel about money, but about souls. Any father that trades their children for money is a pimp and is guilty of spiritual prostitution. We see a lot of that in churches. 17. Fathers lay up for their children. Fathers are preparing for their eventual departure from this earth and are always setting things in order for their children. Even when you're a young man like me, I've got a will. I've got a 401k. I've got beneficiaries. I am already thinking ahead. Because even if I live, if the Lord tarries and I live another 60 years, that's a bigger 401k for my kids to inherit or even a church to inherit. So you have to think about this stuff in advance. The preparation can include getting a ministry debt-free, if we're talking about preachers, training up a successor, leaving final orders, and praying for the continued success once the parent has departed. Pastor Akwoko said that when his mama died at the age of 108, she gathered everybody around him. She was not a burden to him. She said, I'm going home and let me pray for you. And she blessed him one final time, laid hands on him. And she told him a year in advance, a year from now, on this date, I will go home at noon. And they, they thought she was goofy. And she knew in advance, I'm going home a year from now. And Pastor Cuoco said, after he raised her from the dead the second time, she lived another 20 years, worked in the garden till the day she went home, sat down in a chair, prayed for everybody, and just went, oh, and was gone at noon. <laughs> That's the way you go, making preparations for everybody, not being a burden. That's how you go. You live life to its fullest, and then you go. <laughs> 3 John 4, our last scripture, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, a lot of ministers would have to write this verse this way. I have no greater joy but that you send me a love offering so I can buy another Bentley. I have no greater joy but that my children buy me a big Rolex for my birthday. I have no greater joy but that my children send my wife and I on a vacation every three months because we deserve it. That's a lot of TBN, modern Christianity. John the Revelator, John the Beloved, John the Aged, 
John the Apostle said, I have no greater joy but to hear that my children walk in truth. Point 18, fathers have no greater joy but to hear that their sons and daughters are living a life well-pleasing to the real Father, the living God. This causes the heart of a spiritual father to smile. My grandfather on his deathbed eight years ago, he asked if he could die because uh, he was concerned that wanting to die was a sin. And he was in his 80s, 86. And I said, no, sir. Right, this was Memorial Day weekend, 2004. I said, no, Papaw. I said, the Bible says, with long life will he satisfy you and show you his salvation. And I said, you've lived a long life. And if you want to go home, the Bible says you can go home and you don't have to die of sickness and disease. And he said, oh, that's such a relief. He said, I was so afraid that me wanting to go home to heaven was a sin. He said, because I'm tired. I, I'm just done. And I said, Papaw, if you're done, just go. And I said, listen, you've lived a long life. You're a World War II vet. You've married. All three of your kids are Christians. All your grandkids are Christians. Two of us are preachers. And he, and he said, that's my favorite part, to think that my kids are Christians and I got two preachers in my lineage now. On his deathbed, that's what he was rejoicing over. And that, that and the other thing, as he was looking at heaven, he said, I, and it, he wanted to repent of some stuff. He said, I'm afraid that when we came back from the war, that as Methodists, we as the deacons made decisions for our honor and not God's honor. And I'm afraid I'm going to answer to God for that. Those were the things he was thinking about right before he died. Answering to God for selfishness as a 24-year-old deacon in the Methodist church in 1950. And that his kids were Christians, his grandkids were Christians, and he had two preachers in the lot. That's what he was rejoicing over. That was a true father. And I said, no, Papa, this was Monday. 2004. I said, no, Papa, if you want to, just fall asleep and go home. And that's what he did Friday. He fell asleep and went home. And the doctor said, there's nothing wrong with him. We don't know why he's not responding. And I said, I know. His will's gone. He doesn't want to be here anymore. So his body's just following. So he told my, he told my grandmother, Granny, he said, Louise, I'm tired. She said, well, just take a nap. I'll go get some dinner. And so she stepped out of the room and he took a nap and woke up in heaven. <laughs> Four days later, had to turn around and drive back to Louisiana again. This causes the heart of a spiritual father to smile. The thought that their children in Christ, their natural children, their spiritual children, that they are serving God in all truth. With so many characteristics, there's 18 of them, to aspire to, it is no wonder that few believers reach this echelon of Christian maturity. May we strive and aspire all the same. What else have we to do? <laughs> so that concludes our teaching on the four stages of Christian growth. I think that one preached the best because nobody's there yet, and therefore we don't have to be beat up by it. And uh, we can be encouraged. I appreciate you guys coming out. Father, bless these folks. May your word be sown richly into their lives as they grow and aspire to be great for you. In Jesus' name, amen.